From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new FPNA podcast. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by Data Rails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we will welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis today. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. Today's guest is Brian Lapidus. He is a director of FPNA at the Association for Finance Professionals, the AFP. He's located in Maryland. He has spent his career working in finance as a director at many companies. He started his career in management consulting at Booz Allen Hamilton. He got his degree from the University of Michigan and the MBA from the Stern School of Business. And an interesting fact I noticed as I was learning about him is he worked for American Express supporting Traveler's Check and prepaid services. I did the same, Brian. I was head of it. I was over FP&A for them for a few years back in uh, 2016, 17. Back back when they had a traveler's check group? <laughs> they still did. It was mostly prepaid at that point. It was pretty small by the time I was in there because I was, you know, this was about six years ago. So I'm sure it was a lot bigger when you were there. But welcome to the show. We're really thrilled to have you as a guest, Brian. Well, Paul, thank you so much for the invitation. Happy to be here and talking to you. Great. Well, can you start by maybe just taking us a little bit through your career, you know, how you got into FP&A and what made you join the, uh, the association for... Uh, Finance professionals. Um, Paul, if I go through all the details of my <laughs> career, I, I, I don't know that your podcast is, is that long. I got into finance because I kept finding, you know, you mentioned that I was in management consulting. I kept finding that in order to really have impact, you had to explain the cost-benefit analysis and you had to go through the economics and the strategy had to make sense, whatever it was that you were trying to do came down to that ability to quantify. And I recognized that I didn't have it, and I was really frustrated. I really felt limited by that. So I went to went to NYU Stern, got my MBA, and um, when I graduated, I joined this really fantastic rotational program at American Express. Uh, you know, Amex is, is a company that really values, values employees and values growing employees. And they recognize, right, they recognize this idea, what I call now is kind of the finance passport that in order to do well in finance, there's so many different things that you need to know. So the way that this rotational program was set up, it was three different roles in three different functions over three different years. So I was in FP&A at Traveler's Check, I was in Audit and Risk Services, and then I was in Treasury. And it's just funny because each time, each time you think you think you know something and you think you know finance, right? Then there's a whole new category of things to learn, a whole new set of expertise. It actually brings up a whole interesting discussion about depth versus breadth and, and what's the right thing for your career. But that's a whole different discussion. Sure. I was at American Express for almost five years. I, we were in New York. My my wife and I uh, we were starting to grow our family, and we just decided that New York was not where we wanted to be. She and I are both from Metro DC. And we spent so much time on the Jersey Turnpike commuting back to see family and cousins and friends. And, and we just decided that that's really where we wanted to be. So um, I guess if, if we were a basketball team, I'd say we engineered a trade. Uh, <laughs> but we, 
we f- found a way. We moved down to D.C. I worked at Fannie Mae almost two years. Didn't know that I was joining Fannie Mae right before the financial crisis. <laughs> um, that's a whole, again, that's a whole different story by itself. Of course. Then I spent five years as the head of FP&A at a direct-to-consumer marketing company. And that's really where I, you know, I have, it was a mid-sized company and I really had my fingers on all parts of FP&A. I know it was the planning, right? It was the budgeting and forecasting. And I reforecasted, you know, all three financial statements plus covenants on a weekly basis, right? For 50, for each week, right? It was just really intense. It was a private equity backed firm. So we had the board that always wanted to know everything. And, <laughs> um, and actually, it was while I was there that I joined AFP as a member. And I, I recall that there was a, a notice that went out. It said, you know, have something interesting to say? Write an article for us. I said, well, you know, I've, I've got something to say. Some things that we did well at the company and some things that we didn't. So that was my start as a member. And I kept and I maintained the ties, maintained my membership. I wrote a little bit here and there. And then a couple of years after that, I was in a different position at a small consulting company. So my second stint in consulting. And I wanted to build out the practice. I was trying to build the financial advisory, the uh, the implementation of EPM, CPM tools. And in order to find my audience for as a consultant, I started speaking at AFP conferences. And I ran the roundtables and I started writing more. And at some point, I said to the guy who, who's now my boss, I said, Jeff, I got to tell you the truth. I'm enjoying all these things I do on the side for AFP much more than I like my day job. And he said, well, that's great, Brian. We like what you're doing for us. So then we, I guess, engineered another another trade, uh, another move. And I've been with AFP on a full-time basis uh, four years now, four years this month. Oh, great. No, that's, that's a great story. And I know what you mean by liking some of the stuff on the side, you know, having started my own business in FP&A and really enjoying writing the articles and a lot of the stuff beyond the day-to-day practitioner, you know, kind of work that we, we do in FP&A. And after t- 20 years of doing the day-to-day, um, the ability to sit back, be thoughtful, think about how do you bring out the, th- the great things about FP&A, the exploratory, the kind of solving mysteries and puzzles, uh, and how do you try to minimize the things that are that are more painful, right? The budget process at this company was incredibly intense. It was minute. I mean, it was every campaign planned over a 60-week period, right? Incredible level of detail down to every single customer. We actually had a, we divided the customer segmentation into 48 different groups and we had a forecast for each 48 different parts of with a recency frequency and monetary value for each one. I mean, it was pretty intense. And I'm curious, do you feel like you got value going down to that level or was it, was the value worth the pain? Because I can imagine in Excel that was painful. Oh, man. Sorry, <laughs> I just had a flashback as you said that. Right, you talk about, because it was, it was all in Excel and it was 135 tabs, one for each campaign. And each tab would then go back and hit this RFM model, right? But that was just for one year and one market. We had four markets. Right, we had the U.S. and three global markets. So now I had four spreadsheets with 135 tabs per year. So when you want to do a rolling forecast and get into the next year, right now you're doubling, right? And that was just for the revenue and COGS component. Mm-hmm. That didn't even include everything else on on, on all the other statements. Um, was there value in it? The value was not to finance in that. 
um, the value is probably to the marketing team because all of those plans tied into how many units we were going to um, on, on the marketing side, how many catalogs we were going to print, who we were going to mail to, where they were going to go. But honestly, in times of, of calm, right, when the waters were calm, it worked pretty well. But of various things happened, and the waters ceased to be calm, and it lost its predictive value. And so then we had this incredibly complex model, very, you know, this black box, which, you know, two to three people in the whole company really understood. And you didn't really know, most people didn't know what was going in. They didn't know what was coming out. All they knew was the final answer. And so it lost its predictive value as the market changed. There were new competitors coming in. As our promotions actually fundamentally changed our relationship with the customers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that gets into, because we were owned by a private equity company, there were certain forces and pressures that changed our normal course of business. So... Uh, the short answer is that over time, no, it, it lost the the increased level of detail, lost the benefit. And that makes sense. And I, I would say that's, I think, usually what happens when you try to be that granular is it gets really difficult to maintain and continue to get the value. And it's always a balancing act, right? You know, how detailed should you be versus bottoms up, top down, everybody has a different opinion. But I'd say that's definitely one of the more intense models I've heard of, the 135 sheets and four different you know, workbooks. I think what happened was there was a confusion of role responsibility among the different areas. And finance managed things that it really shouldn't. I had my finger in every single ad, every single catalog, and we were printing 6 billion pages of catalogs per year. Um, so I had, we had our finger on every single catalog and every campaign when honestly... You know, that's what the product development team, the product marketing team should have been working on. I think they, I think it was over-engineered and the financial forecast got confused with the, the marketing forecast and the supply chain forecast and what had to be ordered. And so by trying to put all these three areas together, then it's simply bogged down under its own weight. Yeah, no, I, I would imagine, especially doing it all in Excel, you know, I mean, that that's a real challenge to to maintain that that level of detail. Thanks for sharing that. And I mean, I think I, you know, I appreciate you sharing how it did provide value at one time and how, you know, some things got lost. And I think that often happens, you know, in different companies, there's a lot of challenges of defining what FP&A is, what role they should play and how they integrate. You know, it's different in every company for sure. And I know, obviously, with you being part of a you know, the uh, AFP, you offer a lot of resources to help people understand what FP&A is and to, to learn about FP&A. So maybe could you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the resources? What does, you know, AFP have available for people in the FP&A space? Why should they be a member? You know, what can they learn? Membership definitely has its privileges, which is for us, uh, and, and our membership is, we think, pretty reasonably priced. Uh, and what it does is it unlocks various other, you know, almost like a secret, right? It unlocks various other doors and and opportunities, such as discounts on our conference. Uh, We believe we have the the biggest and the best conference in the business. Pre-pandemic, we were at 7,000 people. I think we're we're building back to that again this year in October in Philadelphia. The certification, right? We have the only real certification and it's very comprehensive and there's a discount on the certification that that you get with your membership. 
and some of the content we have available for free, a lot of our written content. We also have other things that are behind a paywall, which includes access to playback and, and, uh, and our deeper content. To your other question about what do we offer, especially for, because you really framed it in terms of for people who want to learn more about FP&A. Um, and we do have offerings for really at all levels, for the senior level CFOs and strategizing and the role of FP&A in the organization. But for someone who's really trying to understand what FP&A is, we actually just put out this phenomenal tool. Um, it's both an interactive web page as well as a, a PDF document that you could download. It's called the, um, the Who, the What, and the Why of Financial Planning and Analysis, or for shorthand, we just call it the FP&A Handbook. And in it, it includes examples, day-in-the-life examples of people around the world saying, what is it that they do on a day-by-day basis? There's also about a half dozen career paths that are all shared, right? And what we found in this research is that for most people, their, their journey takes them to and through FP&A. And we profile we, six people, uh, some who have started, actually very few started in FP&A, most moved in. Some have been, moved into CFO and then into FP&A roles. Some have gone FP&A to CFO. We have people talking about moving or running a center of excellence. Other people who have taken their FP&A benefit and, and what they've learned and now are is the general manager at a company. So we share career paths. We share the day in the life. We share best practices on what it, it could be to uh, what your department could be aspiring to. And this is going to sound funny, but we spend a lot of time not only defining what it means to work there, but why it is important to define it. And I'll give you a quick example. I had one CFO of a, a major company say to me, yeah, I know what FP&A is. It's everyone who reports to me who's not in audit, treasury, or accounting. That's what FP&A is. <laughs> and the problem with that is, one, you're not really defining the skills, right? You're mm-hmm. not saying this is what it means to be great. And because you're not defining the skills, you're not defining the training path and the curriculum and the, uh, the on-the-job resources in order to allow people to be great. And so we go through why it's important to define it as well as how to, well, how to be great and give the view of, of what it's like to make a life in FP&A. That sounds like a really handy uh, document for people. And, you know, one of the probably most common questions I get a lot, especially from accountants, is how do I break into FP&A? You know, I think I get a message probably almost weekly, sometimes multiple times in a week, you know, sometimes a little less, but pretty regularly of, hey, can you help me? What resources? And when they ask me for training and certifications, I always want mention, hey, you can look at this. This is if you want a full certification, you know, here's some other resources. And it will also often point them in the direction of the AFP because I know you guys have a lot of a lot of great content. And that handbook does sound like, you know, something that's very handy. I like how you talked about the different paths. Because, right, there is no, there's no one path to FP&A and there's really no one path after, you know. There's a lot of different things you can do because FP&A, when done right, you learn so much about the business. You really get your hands dirty and learn a lot of things of how the, how the company works and partner with a lot of people. And I found it opens up a lot of opportunities. You're, you're really spot on that in order to be good at FP&A, well, well here, here's how I usually describe it, right? So FP&A sits in the CFO function, and, and that's really important. Uh, the CFO is the steward of capital, and that's broken out into where where the capital go, right? Proper controls mm-hmm. and reporting, we call that accounting. 
how do you move that capital around the company for deployment? And how do you receive, right? We call that treasury. And then FP&A is where is that next dollar of capital going to go? And it's really important to, to think about it that way so that FP&A understands its role. It understands what it should do and what it shouldn't. And this is going to sound funny. It understands that it reports to the CFO. So often people talk about business partnership and providing people what they want, what they need, right? That is an important element. But being a partner to whatever your business, whatever you're, who's sitting on the other side of the table, whether that's IT or HR or marketing or, or customer service, right? It doesn't mean that you give them everything that they want because then you're not being true to your role as the steward of capital. Finance, FP&A, needs to be a partner in a way that supports but also challenges, right? You have to know the business, but you are a business person with a finance expertise. And when you sit down at the table with your, with your C-suite, with whatever executives, they're looking for marketing to bring customer strategy or product strategy. They're looking for HR to talk about how to pe- bring people strategy. They're looking to finance to bring capital discipline, modeling, quantification. And I get frustrated when I hear people talk about how they're bending over backwards and doing all these things to be a great partner. There is a limit to what it means to be a great partner. FP&A works for the CFO first and foremost. You know, and kind of, I'd love to add something to that that really drove that point home for me in my career. So I had, we had this new CFO come in and he had worked in the business before and very, very tough guy. One of the hardest people I'd worked for in the sense he was very demanding, but I learned a ton. And I remember one time he set me aside, Paul, he goes, you're great at your job, but you're not hard enough on the business. And at first I was like, because he was a very hard guy. I'm like, I don't want to be like you. He had a reputation where you know, a lot of people had a hard time with him. But then I stepped back and kind of looked at it and said, you know, he's right. And I learned because too often I bend over backwards for the business. And I learned my job's to take care of that capital. And there's times I have to say no. And what happened is the relationships became better. And I became a better partner by recognizing that, you know, I report to the CFO and kind of funny end of the story is he ended up becoming my general manager. And I was basically his, you know, CFO as a director. And I remember one day we're in a call and there's something where, you know, I, I got, I got on him about it. He's like, no, you're not supposed to do that with me. Well, you told me I'm supposed to be harder <laughs> with the business, you know, and he's kind of like... Not for me, with the other people. <laughs> you know, it was one of those type of moments. It was more, we kind of have a little bit of fun with them, but we kind of laughed about it. I love the phrase of effective challenge, right? Finance is supposed to provide effective challenge to the assumptions, right? And sometimes we'll be overruled, and that's fine. Sometimes you make decisions for strategic, for non-quantitative reasons. That's fine. But our job is to bring that point of view. No, I totally agree. I mean, I remember one time seeing in a company where finance had pushed so hard on the business that, and this is not what you want, was unhealthy, but it was before I'd got there. They actually had a business plan and a finance plan because finance had let the business know their plan was not achievable. They could not go to the CFO and sign up for it. So they actually ran two plans for the year. And I can tell you it was nowhere close to what the business thought it was going to be at the end of that year. Yeah, two sets of books is, uh, that's a juggling act. Yeah, it was a bad idea. It should have never happened, but it just shows that at least they were pushing back and saying, look, this isn't realistic. It's not achievable. And you have to understand that. We can't, you know, we can't as a company in finance sign up to these numbers and what we give as a result. 
So no, to- totally agree. I want I want to return back to something you said earlier about people who are trying to ch- transition from accounting to finance, and I know this is this is really top of mind for me. We have a, a guide that we wrote. It's a couple of years old. It's called "Making the Transition from Accounting to FP&A," and the reason it's top of mind is this summer, uh, probably mid to late summer, we're going to refresh it, but. The original version is out now. We're going to refresh it with kind of updated examples and a little bit more technicality. But we are, as far as resources, it's really helpful and it really explains kind of the basic idea of what is different from accounting to finance, what's different about the mindset, who you talk to is different, and ultimately what you're trying to produce is different. So just want to throw that out there for your listeners. No, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that. I'm sure that will be a great guide. I remember, uh, I'm sure you know, and many people know in the community, Anders Lou Lindbergh. His most, if he goes to Google, the number one search thing for him is transitioning from accounting to FPA. He wrote an article a few years ago, and it's still the number one thing that gets searched on on Google of all the stuff he's written. So it just shows how, you know, how many people are looking to make that transition. Switching gears here a little bit, can you talk a little bit about kind of the the uh, FP&A certification? You know, who should take that? What are some of the benefits? How kind of, you know, how should people think about that certification for their career? Sure. You know, there's a certain thing that certifications exist to do a couple different things, right? It's to establish a baseline of knowledge. So if you're, if you're the boss, you want to know that your team has a certain baseline of knowledge to do the job well, and so you might want your team to do that. On the flip side, if you're trying to demonstrate, right, if you're the employee or you're an applicant and you want to demonstrate that you have that baseline of knowledge, the certification really is what will help with that. Similar, if you want to demonstrate expertise, I call this the, the check the box, right? If you want to show, yes, I've done this, I understand it, I know it, then the certification will help you do that as well. It's funny, you know, when we talk about needing to move around finance, right? That idea of a finance passport, you've got to, you know, stamp stamp that you've done your time or your service in reporting or in accounting or in audit or in treasury, right? Each one of those has a certification. How do you know that you've mastered treasury? Well, you've got the CTP. How do you know that you, how can you demonstrate that you've mastered FP&A? I've got the FPAC. So as you go around and you build your resume and your finance passport in order to get those higher level roles, those more senior CFO roles, you know, it's a great way of saying I've done that. And then kind of the, the third way that it, that it helps, especially for job applicants, if you really want to get into the field, right? If you are in accounting and you want to move into FP&A, having the certification will signal your interest. It'll show I'm really serious about this. I, I really want to make the move. I've done my homework. I know what it's about. And so the cert will will help you with that. No, that makes sense. And speaking of the certification, how long do people usually need to study? Like what's kind of the time commitment to you know earn your certification? I imagine there's some work, if I remember right, some work qualifications. I know there's a couple tests, but maybe talk a little bit about that. So, and, and you've really got it uh, spelled out there. There are... There's the testing part, and then there's the evidence of actually having worked in the field. Mm-hmm. And so we do, we do require both. And the evidence can include education as well as time spent. And we'll actually look at your activities, what you've done within certain roles. Is there a forecasting or an analytical component? As for the test itself, there are two parts. 
And the first part, if you have a CPA, you can waive out of it because the first part is heavily accounting and, and, and typical finance skills. So you can accelerate through that and get right to the second part. What our members tell us is that they expect to spend about 30 to 40 hours studying for each of the two tests. And so if you take them in consecutive windows uh, you can, um, and you've got the experience, then you can have the whole process taken up, taken care of in a year. No, sounds good. Thanks. That's helpful. So you had mentioned earlier a little bit, I know you guys have an annual conference, and I think this is the first year since COVID it's in person, right? Second. Last fall, we had a hybrid conference in DC. Um, so this this one, I think, will be uh, even bigger than we were able to pull together last year. Well, great. So it's it's starting to return a little bit more to normal. You had a mix last year, and now you're going full you know, on site. So can, maybe can you talk a little bit about that conference, you know, what can people expect? What's, you know, what do you hope to accomplish with, with doing that? So from a high level, right, the conference this year, Philadelphia, October 23rd to the 26th, what to expect? Um, we will have more than 100 different educational sessions spread out over six tracks, FP&A, Treasury, Capital Markets, Career Planning, I can't remember all six rattling off quickly, but we will have 100 different educational sessions in those areas. We'll have keynotes, including Adam Grant, uh, who I looked at his wisdom on LinkedIn every day. I think he's just has brilliant insights just on mm-hmm. work, the nature of work and how to work. Uh, Leila Ali is our other keynote, an entrepreneur. She's uh, been obviously an athlete. Uh, she has her own business lines, just really interesting person and interesting lived experiences. And the FP&A keynote is going to be Stacey Vanek-Smith who is a podcaster, a host, a reporter, an author. You know, I've been a fan of hers for years, and I love how she takes uh, economic information and wraps a story around it. Mm-hmm. So you've got your keynotes, you've got your education, we've got, um, we have networking sessions, whether they're roundtables or we have something really unique this year. It's called the FPNA Hub. That's a little hard to explain, but when you're there in person, it's going to really foster more interaction and more networking. Because some of this feedback we've had before is it's great to go to the sessions. The sessions are wonderful, but some of the best learning happens in the hallways. And it happens around peer-to-peer. Hey, I've got a problem. How did you solve this? And we've come up with a way to really identify what those problems are and introduce people to others and really help the individual get what they need and get different answers and, and meet their peers. I love the FP&A hub idea. You know, recently I launched a chapter here in Utah for kind of FP&A to get people together every month. And it's been fabulous to hear different people's experiences, right? To be able to talk about real world problems that you're facing and have 15 people in the room can be like, hey, well, I tried this or I did that. Because you don't, you don't get that out of a book. You rarely, you know, generally don't get that out of a training. You don't get that from a speaker. You might get some ideas, but, you know, generally if you're attending a big session with 50 people, you know, you can't get that one-on-one conversation or two, you know, two, three people and really start to get some ideas that you can take back and, and use on a personal level. I remember at one of our conferences a few years ago, and I'm smiling. You can't see it because it's a podcast, but I'm smiling because I remember <laughs> this moment where... I was talking to this one, this one person who I just met, and he was telling me how he really was getting into 
power query and power pivot, you know, not just the power BI, but like the real deep, you know, DAX levels, technical stuff. And I'm listening to it and I said, you have to meet this other person. So I introduced them, right? They skipped the next session because they just like started talking and getting into the details about, you know, all, all this incredible detail. And so then, I mean, they were practically arm in arm, skipping down the hall, like they found each other and they, they had this meeting of the minds. The next year they came back and they were presenting on, on what they had talked about, on their mutual love of how to apply power query um, to, you know, and scale it up throughout the entire organization, right? That's the kind of thing that for me gives me incredible joy, right? I feel like I've made a match. I've helped people find their people. They've gone back and they've, you know, they've made their organization better. Um, it's a great feeling at working for AFP to be able to provide those moments. Now, I, I could see where that's incredible, incredibly rewarding. I mean, anytime you kind of get to make those connections and make a difference with people and make a difference, you know, both personally and professionally, it's rewarding. So that's, I, I love that example. So thanks for sharing a little bit about that conference. You know, I would just encourage members, if you're in a position where you can come, it should be a great event. I know I'm looking forward to being there. It'll be my first event. You know, to jump in here, one of the other reasons to come is that they can meet Paul Barnhurst and hear him speak on stage, uh, presenting about building trust with uh, Christian Waddick. I'm uh, super excited about that. You know, the opportunity to speak with Christian. Didn't think I'd be at the conference this year. And, you know, he'd, he approached me about that. And I was like, well, it's a great opportunity. And so I'm really looking forward to it. So thanks. So what advice would you offer? Let's just say someone's starting a career in FP&A. You know, particularly today with all the uncertainty and, you know, what we see is I, I would say rapid change going on in, in the profession as they're continuing to be asked to do more and more. What advice would you give to someone who's, you know, kind of looking to start a career in FP&A? The way that I think work being done and will continue to be done is this idea of integrative intelligence. And this is part of what separates FP&A from accounting, right? Accounting, it's, all, it's a lot about finding the information and getting it into the system. FP&A is about getting it out of the system and integrating that financial knowledge with the operational knowledge and the market knowledge. And so the way to integrate it is you have to understand the business. You have to understand that the answer is not there and the answer is not known, right? Again, differentiating from other parts of finance. It's an exploratory process. And so you don't have all the answers and the person you're talking with doesn't have all the answers. So that integrative intelligence means collaboration, collaboration with people, collaboration of data from different data sets. And because you're collaborating, what it means is that the work itself often gets disaggregated so that all these different people are working on it and then brought back together at the end. And so that's, I think, the mindset that's so helpful. And with that, there's lots of things underneath it, right? You have to be curious. You have to be, uh, you have to be a good teammate. You have to be open-minded and be willing to learn and have a growth mindset, right? There's all those great adjectives under it. But the overarching thing is you don't have the, all the knowledge. Create a good question and go out and research it and pull together from all these different areas in order to bring back what you think is your, your best estimate of what's right. No, and I appreciate that. And I like what you said at the end, best estimate of what you think is right. Because there's no such thing as a perfect plan. Yeah, no, I know. I'm a believer in that that cone of, prob of possibility or cone of probability, right? 
You don't know what's going to happen. You know, you could you could have the most amazing model that comes out with your NPV, but you know, all models are wrong. Hopefully, yours can be helpful, can be useful, right? So you've got, you know, it's probability around its range forecasting, its scenarios. To, of different things that could be an outcome. You know, it's important for finance to hold multiple points of view at the same time in order to get into that cone of possibility. And so that's another mindset thing, right? What is it like to work in FPNA? Well, it's not about accuracy and precision and granularity. It's about estimates and probability and trying to make the right decision based on the information you have. No, I, I like that, making the right decision based on the information. One, it's never perfect. Two, you're always making assumptions. It's about being able to make reasonable adjustments, trying to see what the future looks like in broad pictures and help the business chart a path that's going to wisely use the capital and being willing to quickly adjust when you're wrong. Because sometimes you're going to put a plan together and it's you know new product launch, different things that you help the business with that it's not going to go right. Sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes the facts on the ground changes. Sometimes there's new information. Um, Right. And so it's, you know, one of the risks of budgets is people are too beholden to the budget. They look at the budget as a as a control function on the future. Right. We talk about the part of the of the CFO that's all about control and reporting. And they think that the budget is that control on the future. Well, the budget is your short term strategy of what you're going to do and create alignment. But just like a model, it's going to be wrong. Right. Adjust reallocate capital, have that agility and flexibility. And I think when you said, you know, kind of about the budget, how there's uh, such a control on it, I think we saw a real change in how people thought thought about the budget with COVID, right? Because almost every company by April of 2020, their budget was blown. In some cases, it was a good thing. Some online, it was like, oh, wow, it's way better than we thought. And others, you know, it had fallen all apart and they had no business for a while. And they had to learn about scenario planning and recognizing that having one path to get there, one short-term plan is dangerous. So the whole budget issue is so interesting because you're right. People just crumpled it up, threw it out the window and, and said, what do we do now? And I was expecting this drop-off of people using budgets. I was expecting to see lots of searches for beyond budgeting methodologies. Here we are a little bit later. And our data shows that people are actually using budgets at the same or an increased rate from where they were in 2017 when we previously had done uh, some significant research on, on the use of budgets. The difference is that people aren't people don't look at their budget as ironclad the way they used to. They don't say this is the end all be all and I'm going to manage to this. So budgets are more in use because of the the way that it creates alignment. And is creates a process for later forecasts. So uh, still in use, but people are just not holding to it as tightly. No, and, and I think that's great, right? Whether it's a bud, whether you do a budget or go beyond budget or forecasting, the important thing is you have a planning process. You have a plan to get there. You analyze it. You revise it, and recognize it's a living, breathing document. Everybody has different opinions on how to budget, how often do you forecast, do you do risks and opportunities, how far out do you go? And the bottom line is there isn't one right answer. It's really about going through that process and making sure you're planning and you're linking things together. Yeah, perfectly well said. I wouldn't add anything to that. You nailed it. 
Well, good. Got something right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so kind of next, next question here is obviously FP&A has been through a challenging couple of years. I think anyone who's worked in FP&A over the last few years can say there's been some real challenges and long hours. And, you know, the, the world, the amount of uncertainty of the world continues to increase. We see it in energy crises, you know, conflicts abroad, pandemics, you know, the rapid rate of change. So where do you see kind of FP&A going into the future? And maybe with all this change, what do you see as the biggest opportunity and the biggest challenge going forward for FP&A? So the biggest opportunity is the flip side of the biggest challenge, which is managing your time really well. We have a session at a conference in, in October that's called Doing Less in Order to Do Better. And what's happened is FP&A has been on the receiving end of multiple streams of requests, right? Give me, give me another scenario. Give me another sensitivity. Give me another forecast. Our research shows that from pre-pandemic to pandemic times, the, n- the number of requests for forecasts is up by a little more than 50%, right? And that's just one portion of your job. So one portion of your job just got increased by 50%. The opportunity, I think, is to be better with your time. And honestly, the first part of that comes with having good, good technology in place. You've got to be able to spin up a forecast on demand. Right. Can't take a week, can't take two weeks, can't go around, right? Find a way to spin up your forecast on demand. Simplify your reporting. And again, our 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 data shows the easiest, the lowest hanging fruit of automation is in reporting. Figure out what people want, set up routines in order to do it quickly, to do it in an automated fashion, and create as much self-servicing as well, so that you can minimize the number of follow-up questions. Right. FPNA needs to create the time and the headspace in order to do what people really want, which is the analysis. Right. You're, we're not adding value when we spend 50% of our time, you know, mashing together spreadsheets and doing X lookups in order to pull from this data set to this data set. Right. Get your data right. Get your systems and your process right. And so, and it really all starts with that data layer. We actually have an event, uh, it's a half day virtual event in June, and it's focused just on that question of how do you get your data right? What does it mean? And and we'll have case studies from four different companies, and they're going to talk about this is, you know, this is how we did it with a data lake, this is how we did it with our reporting, Um, pulling together these different views, because if you're spending all of your time cleaning data and just writing and rewriting ETLs and, and, right? You're not using your time well. You're not re- reacting quickly, which is what your, your partners need. And I'll be honest, when I talk to recruiters, when I talk to young people in the finance space, and they're saying, and you're telling them, okay, you're going to come and you'll, you know, you're going to spend 10% of your time actually doing the interesting part of finance. You're going to spend the rest of your entry level, your beginning jobs, mashing together spreadsheets. You know what they say? I'm going to go work over there. And they're really making a choice. Right, and so if I'm talking to if I'm talking to your your audience that's actually looking for a job, right? I would ask the employer, what systems do you have in place that are going to allow me to do good work? Because if I'm not doing good work, if I'm not doing interesting things, if I'm not using my degree or my experience to make to add value, right? If all I'm doing is is coding and and adding things up, I'm going to go get a better job because somebody else is hiring and they're going to offer me the experience and the growth opportunities that I want. That's a great point. And, you know, as I heard somebody put it, when it comes to this whole digital transformation is first thing, get your house in order, which is your data. You know, you can't 
you can't layer in the right tools and have your processes really work the way you want if you're spending all your time with ETL, with Power Query, with SQL, with whatever it might be to try to make sense of the numbers so that you can provide that report that management needs. Yeah, a chef doesn't make soup with dirty water, right? We're not going to make our great analyses with bad data. Yeah, you know, and I, I think an important distinction is every company, you know, no company has perfect data. And sometimes you think, well, I got to get it perfect. You got to get it good enough that you can make smart decisions. And that's going to be different by industry and data set, what that needs to be. But I think having a clean process so the data is good and can drive you in the right direction versus trying to get that last mile, right? You see people that want to get it 100% and then you're all you're ever doing is trying to improve your process because, well, got to get it. this. This doesn't quite work. It's just not quite where I need it. And so I think, you know, that distinction is very important to recognize in that process that it needs to be good enough to make intelligent decisions. So here, you know, as we're wrapping up, we're kind of toward the end of our time. Two more questions here for you. One is, what's something that uh, not many people know about you? Maybe kind of an interesting hobby or something they wouldn't find online that you'd be really willing to share? Interesting hobby. I think I'm just too boring. Maybe that's the thing that, that they don't know. So I'm just pretty boring. Um, you know, I've I'm, I'm sitting here in suburban DC. I've got two teenage kids. Honestly, I think a lot about the fact that they're going off to college and uh, I feel that internal clock ticking that uh, they're only going to be in the house, you know, for one of them for only 16 more months. So I feel that. So I definitely am trying to hold on to as much time as, as I can with my kids and, and free up that space. I appreciate that advice, having a daughter that's nine and realizing how fast she's growing. And going, wait, she's halfway to adulthood now. I remember, you know, when she was born. It just it goes by fast for sure. Yeah. I used to coach I used to coach their soccer teams. And uh, my younger daughter just came uh, on the soccer field, you know, in a in a rainbow tutu. Right. You know, I look at her now and she's a lot bigger now. And you know, and she's um yeah, it's you know, count your days, watch them and um it goes fast. You bring a great point. It does go fast and it reminds us all what's important right? You know, it's about family, friendship, relationships at the end of the day. I mean, work can be fun and we want it to be fulfilling and enjoyable, but, you know, we work so that we can enjoy life and take care of our family at the end of the day. So, all right, last question here. And as you know, uh, you know, the, our podcast is sponsored by DataRails, which is big fans of Excel. So we're going to ask a question here. What's your favorite Excel function? <laughs> um, my favorite Excel function I remember when I discovered Goal Seek, I mean, it was just mind blowing, right? The ability to, you know, to figure out or to, sim to simplify all those different inputs to get the output that you need, to figure out what the sensitivities, right? To build sensitivities around that. Um, when I learned Goal Seek, it was mind opening. I think I ran around the office telling everybody, but nobody else was quite as enthralled as I was. <laughs> No, goal seek is a great one, and I know a lot of people love that. Uh, love using that, but yeah, that's typically the case when we find a favorite Excel function and we're sharing it with everybody. I've had that experience. They're kind of like, "That's nice. You can go back to your cube now." Don't you know? Don't you get it? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I was when I learned Power Query and Power Pivot. You realize you could stop, stop copying and pasting. There's all these things you can do, and they're just like, "Yeah, that's your thing. That's that's nice." Right? No, no, really, it will save you time. Well, 
Thanks for joining us today, Brian. I really enjoyed chatting with you and getting to know a little bit more about you. And I'm sure our uh, guests will enjoy listening to the podcast and learning some of the great resources that AFP has available. So thanks again. Paul, it's been a pleasure. You know, I look forward to your posts. Uh, you and I are on LinkedIn all the time. So always look forward to uh, conversing with you there. And thanks for the opportunity to speak to your audience today. You're welcome. And like I said, look forward to seeing you on LinkedIn and then seeing you in person for the first time here in uh, October. It'll be great. So thanks. Thanks.